Thank you, Jim. Well, uh, as you may have noticed, we have a, uh, a new furniture item up here on the, uh, on the platform. And um, just to give you some encouragement, um, myself and a group of other like-minded pastors meet every, every three months or so uh, to encourage one another, to pray with one another. We read good books and discuss those with one another. And that's been a very good source of building unity within um, doctrinally solid local churches, right? It's been a blessing in many different ways. Um, and our brothers and sisters up at uh, Mount Rose uh, Presbyterian o OPC Church up in Reno, um, they had an extra pulpit, and they said, hey, would you be interested in, in taking this pulpit? And so uh, we checked it out, and it was solid. So anyway, this is actually a gift from another church. And so just, again, to encourage you, relationships within the body of Christ, as Jim was praying for, unity amongst local churches, um, this is, a, a, in a way, a, a picture of that at work. So uh, good, good things there. One other quick thing, real quick. Um, now a number of you have... Uh, have brought up to me um, the, the question of the Sabbath, right? After uh, our brother's excellent sermon last week, what, what is the Christian's relationship to the Sabbath now? And so um, rest assured, we will get to that topic. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus talks about the Sabbath directly. Um, and so we will be getting to that question of uh, in what ways is the Sabbath applicable and relevant and commanded for Christians, and in what ways is it not? So... Um, be patient. We'll get there. It's always a conversation that, you know, I think any one of us are willing to have after church. Um, but as elders, we want to come to a place where we're actually on the same page about that question, too. So be patient with us as we work through that. Um, but rest assured, we will get there in about six months, depending on how fast we go through Matthew. So uh, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8 is where we'll be this morning. Matthew chapter 8. We'll be in the first four verses. And we are resuming our study through the Gospel of Matthew. Um, we finished the Sermon on the Mount a few weeks ago, and when we got to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, after Jesus has delivered uh, the greatest sermon ever given, we could say, as he's touched on many different issues of uh, who he is, what his mission is, and what um, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven are called to do, right? If you remember, we saw that that standard that Jesus sets in the Sermon on the Mount is impossible for us to meet perfectly. But at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us right off the bat, he is the one who fulfills those requirements. Only he can do that. Quite an amazing sermon that really points us back to Christ and our need for him to fulfill the law for us. And as Jesus gets to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, as he utters the last word, the crowds have a response to him. If you remember, in verse 28 and 29 of chapter 7, Jesus finishes his sermon, the crowds are astonished, Matthew says, astonished. And they're astonished not just at the content of his teaching, but something greater. Matthew tells us in verse 29, they're astonished at his authority. They're astonished at Jesus' authority. And Matthew, as he's writing his gospel under the, the inspiration and providence of God, does something very, very cool. In the next few chapters, Matthew is going to paint a picture for us of Jesus' authority. That word's going to occur a couple times in chapter 8. And we're going to see through the miracles and the works that Jesus does in this next section of Matthew, Jesus' authority at work. We're going to see in the next few chapters that Jesus' authority over the natural realm, the human body, illness, disease. 
We're going to see that Jesus has authority over the natural world as he calms the storms. We're going to see that Jesus has full authority over the spiritual realm as he casts out demons. And we'll see that Jesus has full authority over mankind as he forgives the sins of the paralytic. The next section of Matthew really focuses on that theme, Jesus' authority. We heard it in his teaching, and now we're going to see it in his deeds, in his works. And this morning, of course, we are in the first four verses of Matthew chapter 8. Jesus heals the leper. Let's read our text for today, starting in verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, meaning Jesus, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Let's ask for God's help as we come to his word. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for your holy scriptures. That you've revealed yourself to us, that you've revealed your truth to us, that you've revealed the gospel of salvation to us in a way we can understand. In a book written in human languages, written by human hands, Lord, as you determined and inspired every single word on these pages, Lord, what an amazing treasure that we possess in your word. And as we come to this account of Jesus' healing this morning, Father, we pray that you would help us to see the glory of Christ. We pray that you would help us to see his authority, his power, his compassion, his mercy. And so, Lord, that as we see this picture of Jesus, we pray you would help us to respond in worship, in faith. Lord, that we would see Christ as the one who has all authority, that we would not claim that right for ourselves, but that we would see him as sovereign Lord. Lord, help me to preach your word faithfully and clearly today that your people would be helped and your name would be glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we look at this text, there's really two things we see in this account. First, in verses 1 and 2, we see the leper's faith-filled request. And then in verses uh, 3 and 4, we see Jesus' mercy-filled response. Now again, as we go back to verse 1, Matthew tells us Jesus has just finished the Sermon on the Mount. He's coming down the mountain, surrounded by the crowds of interested hearers who have been amazed and astonished at his teaching and his authority. And now that the Sermon on the Mount is over, Jesus moves on to uh, another uh, stage, another chapter of his earthly ministry. Matthew tells us in verse 1 that as Jesus is coming down the mountain, coming down the path, these crowds who heard his teaching are following him. They're they're following him down the hill. Now this this phrase, they're following him, does not refer to their spiritual state. Sometimes we say, "I'm, I'm following Jesus, I'm a follower of Jesus. Well, that's not what Matthew's describing here. This is just their physical activity, right? They are behind Jesus, trailing behind him, probably pretty interested to see what he's going to do next, right? Jesus has said all of these things. He's taught with this authority. What is he going to do next? Now, these crowds are actually, uh, in a way, a character in the Gospels. We see the crowds um, who interact with Jesus 
in all four gospel accounts. They follow Jesus many places. They hear many things he said. But ultimately, the crowds are merely interested in Jesus at this stage in the gospel. They're just interested in him. He's a curiosity. They may be amazed and astonished. But there's no indication that the crowds have a response of genuine saving faith in Jesus. They find him intriguing, but they do not appear to see him as Lord and Savior. And in fact, later on, as we see in John's gospel, when the teaching gets too tough, the crowds disappear. And maybe some of you this morning or some of you watching online can relate to the crowd in this way. Maybe Jesus and Christianity are something you find interesting. Maybe it's a world religion. But perhaps you have not yet come to believe and trust in Jesus personally. And if that's where you find yourself this morning, um, then the miracle we see in this passage with the leper is actually something for you to pay very close attention to. In fact, the response of the leper that we see in verse 2 is in a way a contrast between the curiosity of the crowd and the leper's faith. Now Jesus is coming down this mountain in Galilee and he's headed towards Capernaum, right, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's a short journey, maybe a mile or two. And as he is descending down the mountain, surrounded by these crowds, something happens. Matthew tries to get our attention. We see in verse 2, Matthew says, Behold, a leper came to him. Matthew uses this word, behold, right? It's a throwback to the King James. We don't really use it in English, modern English too much anymore. But really, it's just a word that means look, look. Have you ever been uh, maybe on a road trip? You're driving, you're just looking out the window, and you see something incredible off in the distance. You say, hey, hey, everybody, look at that over there. My wife will tell you this is me on road trips, and it makes her a little nervous because I start to swerve while I'm driving. But the point is you're excited. You're saying, hey, look at this. Pay attention to that. Check this out. That's essentially what Matthew's doing here. He's drawing our attention as readers, as hearers of this gospel, to something amazing and important that is going to happen. And Matthew's actually going to do this three more times just in this chapter. Behold, behold, behold. So behold, a leper comes to Jesus. Now, who, who were the lepers? Who were the lepers? If you've read parts of the Bible, if you've seen the movie Ben-Hur, you're probably aware of the issues of lepers, right, in the ancient world. So in our modern world today, leprosy refers to Hansen's disease, right? This is a disease caused by a bacteria, and it attacks the peripheral nerves in your body, right? Your hands, your feet, your fingers, your face, and it can be disfiguring too, right? But in the ancient world, um, and especially in the Bible, when leprosy is talked about, the word is just referring to a large category of undefined skin diseases. It's not necessarily just Hansen's disease, what we call leprosy today, but any number of different contagious skin conditions. But regardless of what the actual illness itself was, ancient leprosy was taken very, very seriously. And we need to actually understand the ancient world's attitude towards leprosy and lepers to see why this is an incredible story, not just for the miracle, but everything else that happens in the narrative. Now turn with me to Leviticus chapter 13, just for a brief picture of what we see in the Law of Moses regarding leprosy. Leviticus 13, do not... Do not fear, we're not going to be able to read this whole chapter here this morning. 
though it is God's word, it is important, and we'll see this morning that this actually informs why what we see in the gospel is important. So we do need Leviticus, brothers and sisters. We do need Leviticus very dearly. Leviticus 13 is a chapter devoted to the issue of leprosy. What were the people of Israel to do when a skin condition occurred in their midst? And as we skim through the chapter, right, as we just kind of look down this, uh, this page, we see that various forms of diseases are described here. It's not all the same symptoms. Right? We see uh, that there are bumps described, erupting spots, swelling, white hairs, yellow hairs, all kinds of different possibilities. Itchiness, all, all that kind of really wonderful stuff. Some of these diseases, as described here, are not dangerous. They're not a concern. Others described here are. Some of these conditions would make you unclean ritually in the community of Israel. Others would not. This is the diagnostic manual for understanding how do we deal with this outbreak in our midst. And if a person ended up with this, this uh, you know, skin condition of some sort, they would go to the priest, they would be examined, and they would be declared either clean or unclean depending on their condition. And part of this, right, of course, is a safeguard of public health, but part of it as well is the holiness of God. If a person was declared unclean because of their skin condition, the results were devastating. Just look down to 45 and 46 of chapter 13. This is what a person would have to do if they were diagnosed and pronounced a leper. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes, let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. If you received the diagnosis of leprosy, your life, as you knew it, was pretty much over. You couldn't live with your family anymore. You couldn't go about uh, temple worship like you used to. You couldn't participate in community or society anymore. You had to live outside the camp, outside the city, living alone, or sometimes with other lepers. And if you're in that kind of condition, how are you going to work and support yourself? You can't go into the city to sell things or to buy things or to trade things. So lepers were often reduced to begging for help. Not only that, but you had to publicly advertise that you were unclean when other people were around. You were completely ostracized. Josephus, a historian from the day, uh, describes that lepers could not come into the city at all or live with any others as if they were, in effect, dead persons. They were cut out from society. Now, some rabbis, living a few centuries after Jesus, perhaps capture the popular cultural attitudes towards lepers, right? And, and none of these things you're going to hear in a moment are prescribed in the law, but they were popular responses to the problem of leprosy. According to the Babylonian Talmud, which is a, an ancient Jewish writing, uh, Rabbi Jonathan and, and Resh Lakish stated it was forbidden to walk within four cubits or a hundred cubits, depending on which way the wind was blowing at the time, to the east of a leper. Right? You couldn't even walk within a certain distance of them. Rabbi uh, Meir refrained from eating eggs which came from a district where lepers lived. Rabbi Ami and Rabbi Asi never entered such a district. They wouldn't even go there. When Resh Lakish saw a leper, he would throw stones at him, exclaiming, Go back to your location and do not contaminate other people. Rabbi Eliezer ben Simeon would hide from lepers. Right? These are the leading Jewish figures, right? And again, this is a little bit after Jesus' time. 
but you can't imagine things were much better while Jesus was walking the earth. In short, lepers were the lowest of the low, especially in Jewish society. And it is because of this, because of this ostracism, because of this being um, removed from society, that the leper comes to Jesus when he does. How would he, get, how would he even get close to Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount while the crowds were there? Right? That wasn't going to work. People were not going to let him in. He wouldn't be able to go into the city of Capernaum to meet Jesus at the end of his journey. His only opportunity to come to Jesus is now on the road when maybe he has the element of surprise. And when the leper comes to Jesus, he does something that the crowds have not done. Look back at Matthew chapter 8. We see in verse 2, the leper comes to Jesus. He approaches Christ. And he kneels before him. He bows before Jesus, his face in the dust. This is a posture of respect. Really, of more than that, it's a sign of submission, sometimes of, of worship. We can imagine this leper with his disfigured face in the dust of the road. There before Jesus, the crowd recoiling in horror. And the leper makes one simple request. But it is a request that reveals his genuine faith in Christ. And each of the parts of the leper's request are incredibly significant. Here's what he says to Jesus. He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. First, the leper addresses Jesus as Lord. The leper addresses Jesus as Lord. In our modern world, we don't really use titles too much, right? Um, they're, they're kind of um, formal for our world today. They still exist, though, in places like courtrooms. You often refer to a judge as your honor. Maybe in your examination room, you call your physician doctor. But in the ancient world, the use of titles was extremely important. And the title that the leper uses here is no less significant. The leper addresses Jesus as Lord, a title used from an inferior to a superior, from those who are in lesser authority to speak to those who are in greater authority. In fact, when you look at what some of the other characters in Matthew's gospel use to address Jesus, you see something very interesting. There are those who address Jesus as Lord. They come to Christ, they appeal to him with saving faith, they are his true disciples, and they address him as Lord. Lord, help me. We'll see that again in Matthew chapter 8 next week. And then you see the scribes, the lawyers of the day. They often address Jesus as teacher, revealing that they merely view him as only that, a teacher, one of their own perhaps. The Pharisees don't address Jesus by any title at all, revealing their thinly veiled contempt for him. So when the leper uses this title, Lord, to address Jesus, this reveals to us that the leper really does recognize that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus has sovereignty and authority that other people simply do not have. The leper realizes that Jesus is not just another teacher of the law, but that there is something different about him. He has authority. And the leper acknowledges that authority as legitimate. He believes Jesus is is Lord, that Jesus truly has authority. Second, the leper begins his request with, if you will. 
if you will. He doesn't say, Lord, make me clean. He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, there's an element in which, if you will, this phrase is a polite way of speaking, but there's an even greater meaning here. The leper has just addressed Jesus as Lord, and in making his request, the leopard seems to be conceding Jesus has no obligation to him. Jesus owes this leper nothing. The leper has no right to demand of Jesus anything, and the leper is fully aware of this. The leper recognizes he is unclean. He recognizes that he is unworthy. And he recognizes that Jesus' will is what matters at the end of the day. The leper is keenly aware that he is at the mercy of Christ. And so he doesn't appeal to any reason in himself why he should be healed and made clean. He doesn't say, hey, Jesus, I've been really trying hard to keep the law. Can you make me clean? Hey, Jesus, I've, I've given a lot of money to my fellow lepers. Can you make me clean now? Hey, Jesus, I, I think your teaching was really good. I could hear a little bit of it from down here. Can you make me clean? He doesn't do that. He doesn't appeal to anything about himself whatsoever. He simply brings his problem of leprosy and uncleanness to Christ, and he says, Lord, if you want, if you desire, if you see it is right, if you will, you can do this. He throws himself on the mercy of Christ. That's his only hope here. And finally, the leper says, you can make me clean. He clearly recognizes Jesus' ability to actually accomplish Jesus' will, which, of course, is the Father's will. Jesus is not just a figurehead without power. Jesus is not like the Queen of England, you know. The leper actually acknowledges Jesus' power is genuine and effectual. I love dogs, right? Big dog person, as long as they're above a certain weight, right? I, I love dogs, love dogs. But you, you ever watch somebody with a badly behaved dog, maybe at the dog park, maybe you've gone over to their house, right? Not a vicious dog, not like a bad dog, um, but just kind of a badly behaved dog, right? The owners are trying to get the dog to come or sit or get off the couch or don't chew on that or leave it, but the dog's ears are just turned off, right? That dog's just doing its thing that doesn't care. Now, the owner's in a position of authority over that dog, right? But does the owner actually have authority over that dog? No, they do not, right? No, they do not. The leper admits here that Jesus not only occupies a position of authority, but that Jesus actually possesses authority over the very illness that has crippled and disfigured him and separated him from his family, his friends, and his people. He says, Jesus, you can do this. The leper may not recognize that Jesus is God in the flesh, right? We're not given that detail. The leper may not realize that Jesus is the creator united to a human nature and human body and soul and and, and mind. But he certainly recognizes that Jesus has full authority over the natural world. The leper, to put it simply, sees Jesus through the eyes of faith, that Jesus can do this very thing the leper requests. The leper has nothing in himself to appeal to. And really, this is an incredible picture of justifying faith, of saving faith. We read this morning about the, the one who believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted to him as righteousness from Romans chapter 4. This is a picture of that kind of belief, that kind of faith. The crowds have a superficial, humanly produced faith. right? Jesus is cool. He's interesting. Uh, let's check him out. They'll listen to what he has to say. But the leper says, Lord, I have a great need. The leper says, there is a great Lord who can help me. 
Right again, the leper doesn't say, I've been a good Jewish boy. I've kept the law. I've gotten everything down. This, this leprosy is just the last thing holding me back. He makes no appeal to himself at all. He recognizes his need. And he boldly but humbly goes to Christ, bows before him, and asks Jesus, if it be Jesus' will, to heal him. The leper's posture Faith before Christ is, is summarized perfectly in the old hymn. We sang it this morning. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Now from what I can tell, none of us here have leprosy, right? None of us here have leprosy. But we do have a great need. We have a need that is greater than the healing and cleansing of the body. Your great need, my great need, the great need of all humanity is to be cleansed from the guilt of sin, to be forgiven by a holy God. Now, perhaps some of you are here this morning or you're, you're watching or you're going to listen to this later. Maybe you're a Christian, maybe you're not a Christian. But maybe you feel dirty, ashamed, condemned. Maybe you feel like the bottom of the barrel, like God is disgusted by you, that he cannot even look at you because of the things you have done. Maybe you can identify with the leper's condition. Now, if that is how you feel, that is how you think about yourself, I am so glad that you're here today, that you're listening. And I'm so glad you're here so that you can see what Jesus does next. See, Jesus' mercy-filled response in the next two verses. Jesus' mercy-filled response. Now, just imagine with me for a moment. Right, a horribly disfigured, highly contagious, diseased person comes right up to you. What do you do? I just remember the COVID days, right? The COVID days. People are like, you know, back, back at the grocery store, you know. That's the natural human response, to get away, to get some distance. I do not want to get whatever that guy has. That's natural human response. For a first century Jew, to get leprosy again would be to be removed from society and isolated. So you would not want to get it, right? You'd, be want to, you'd want to be very careful to avoid getting leprosy. So how does Jesus respond? Does he recoil in disgust? Does he tell the lepers to go away or throw rocks at, at this man like the other rabbis of the day would have done? No, Jesus does the opposite. Matthew tells us in verse 3 what Jesus does. It says, first, Jesus stretches out his hand towards the leper. Jesus does not back away from the leper. Jesus draws closer to the leper. And friends, that is the very nature of Jesus towards his sinful people. Right? Even though the world lay in sinful darkness, Jesus didn't look upon his people in disgust. He didn't say, I'm not going down there. No, but with patient and condescending love, he took on human flesh. The Apostle John tells us, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The very Son of God, the holy and pure and righteous and fully divine, voluntarily took on a human nature to live among sinful, weak, suffering humans like you and me. Jesus' response to those who suffer the effects of sin in this world is not one of disdain. It's one of deep compassion. And Mark tells us in his account, in Mark chapter 1, that Jesus is moved by pity here. Jesus is moved by compassion for this poor leper. And he reaches out his hand towards him, not away from him. But that's not all. That's not all. Jesus' hand keeps going, and then something unthinkable happens. Matthew tells us he touches the leper. Jesus touches the leper. 
Now, it's easy to miss this as modern Americans, right? But imagine that you're a first century Jew hearing what Jesus has done here. He touched the leper. Like That's like touching radioactive waste, right? That would make you unclean. That, that could make you diseased. What is Jesus doing? Why is he touching the leper? But Jesus does. Why? As one commentator notes, by his word alone, Jesus could have healed the leper. But he applied at the same time the touch of his hand to express the feeling of compassion. This was probably the first human touch that this leper had felt for years. Years. Can you imagine the compassion, the love, the mercy, the kindness, the care that was communicated to him by Christ in a simple touch. Now, notice something. Our Lord doesn't just heal the leper as quickly as possible and move on to the next thing. He doesn't go, okay, boom, you're done. Uh, away with you. Jesus isn't just concerned about the leprosy here. Jesus is concerned about the person kneeling on the ground before him as a person. Now, friends, do we interact with people this way, like Christ? Are we more concerned about solving problems than about caring for people? Jesus took the time. He went out of his way to show compassion to this leper, even doing something that would damage his reputation potentially in the culture. But Jesus cares about the person before him there. He doesn't view him as a problem to be solved onto the next thing for the kingdom of God. But notice this too. Jesus touches the leper. Does he seem to be concerned about becoming unclean himself? Well, no, he, he doesn't. But Jesus is supposed to be fully obedient to the law of Israel. He's supposed to be fully obedient to his father's will. Does this mean Jesus is now ritually impure? It's a question to think about, right? And the answer is no. Jesus is certainly under the same law as any other Jewish person, since he is born under the law, Paul tells us in Galatians, but Jesus himself, he is holy, he is pure, he is without defilement or uncleanness, he is without sin. He has a power and a purity that you and I and no other person have. As one commentator knows, D.A. Carson, he says, the important thing to note is that Jesus doesn't thereby become unclean, but as we'll see in a moment, the leper becomes clean. When Jesus comes in contact with defilement, he says he's never defiled. Far from it, his power has the power to cleanse defilement. Jesus doesn't have the same problem that you and I do. He is not a sinner. He cannot be defiled. He cannot sin or become unholy. He is holiness itself. Instead, he has the power to purify, to sanctify, and to forgive. And as Jesus reaches out and touches this leper, who's come to him by faith, Jesus says two simple things. Two simple things. He doesn't make a big show. He doesn't say, look, everybody, at what I'm about to do. He just does two simple things. The humility of our Savior. And he says to the leper, I will be clean. I will be clean. It is Jesus' will to cleanse this leper. Charles Spurgeon remarks that when is well observed, Jesus never says, I will not. He wills whether we will or not. 
Uh, there's not one instance in Scripture where Jesus turns away somebody who comes to him sincerely seeking his help. Not a single time. It is always Jesus' will to help those who come to him sincerely and humbly. Let that be an encouragement to you today. Jesus says, I will. And then what Jesus says next is really a command. He says, be clean. Be clean. This is the language of authority, right? Jesus doesn't say, okay, well, in order to be clean, here's the things you have to do. Jesus says, be clean. He speaks and it is done. His words reveal what his will is, and they really do provide a way that uh, everybody who's watching can see his authority at work. Jesus is God, and when God speaks, he is obeyed. Think back to the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. With the very same power, with the very same authority, with the very same divine uh, power and person, Jesus says, be clean. And immediately, instantly, the man is cleansed and healed. Jesus heals the man with a word, providing, or proving again that his authority is genuine. That he has authority over all things that cause human suffering. In this example, physical disease. This is an amazing miracle, isn't it? Something that you and I cannot do. Jesus has the power to heal this man and uses it. The law couldn't do that. The law of Moses could not cleanse people from leprosy. Jesus can and does. Now, does this mean that we should expect Jesus to heal our physical diseases in the same way today if we ask him? Well, I think the way the leper asked the question is pretty instructive for us. The leper said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. In the same way, we may ask the Lord to heal our bodies, knowing he has full authority over that, but yet at the same time acknowledging that it may not be his will to do so. If it is, he can, but it may not be his will to do so. And in those moments, we rest by faith in his goodness towards us, even if we don't understand why he's doing what he's doing or why he may not heal us. The leper shows us the way to ask in faith. And then Jesus gives this leper a very interesting set of instructions. Really, two things that Jesus tells him to do or not to do, depending on how you want to look at it. The first is very interesting. You see in verse 4, Jesus says to the leper, see that you say nothing to anyone. That's the first thing Jesus tells him to do. Don't say anything about it. Don't tell anybody. Keep it under wraps. And you think that after such an amazing miracle, Jesus would want the leper to spread the news, right? You think Jesus would want everybody to know about his power and his ministry, but that is not what happens. It's not what Jesus tells the leper to do. And in fact, this isn't the only time Jesus prohibits those he heals from telling other people about it. Right? This happens all the time in Mark's gospel especially. Jesus even prohibits the demons from revealing who he is. Why wouldn't Jesus want everyone to know what he did? Right? Why would he want this to be a secret? Uh, this kind of rubs against our American evangelical sensibilities, right? We want everyone to know about Christ, and we should. So, so what's Jesus doing here? What's this about? Well, commentators debate as to why Jesus does this in the Gospels, why he um, requests that his, uh, his works are kept a secret. And there's a couple different perspectives on why Jesus does this. Um, but I think the most reasonable explanation is this, to quote 
one of these many commentators. He says, Jesus did not wish people to misunderstand what he was about or to regard him simply as a wonder worker of the kind of person who would be expected to lead a revolt against the Romans in due course. He thus urged people to keep quiet about the wonderful things he had done for them. So in other words, Jesus wants people to focus on the important aspect of who he is. He's an amazing healer, right? The fact Jesus does this miracle is incredible. But Jesus' primary mission is not to heal the body. Right? His healings demonstrate his great power and authority. They show his great love and compassion. But they are not his most important work. His most important work would come in Jerusalem when he would be crucified and resurrected for the salvation of his people. Not lead a revolt against the Romans or heal everyone of their diseases. Jesus is keenly aware of people's ability to focus on the wrong thing for the wrong reasons. We see this today, right? Where people only focus on right, the healing of the, the physical human body, right? Supernaturally, that's what it's all about. Well, that's, that's not what it's all about. And Jesus uh, wants people to focus on the most important aspect of who he is as Savior. As Savior. But at the same time, Jesus doesn't want this healing to remain fully concealed either. Now look at the next part of verse 4. He says, Go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. For a proof to them. Now instead of telling uh, everyone about the cleansing, Jesus tells the leper to go to the priest and make the sacrifice the law commanded. And if we were to look at Leviticus 14, which is the companion chapter to Leviticus 13, uh, we would see that Leviticus 14 is all about the procedure to restore somebody who was healed of leprosy back to the community. What would need to happen, right? If we were to look at that chapter, we would see there's a cleansing ritual involving the, the blood of a bird and water that would be sprinkled on the healed leper, and then they shave all their hair off, wash their clothes, and bathe, right? This is a cleansing ritual. And then they could come back in the camp, right? Uh, this is what Jesus means when he tells the leper, go show yourself to the priest. The priest has to take a look and verify that this man is truly healed. Because if he's not, he's got to go back outside, right? But if leprosy has been healed, this, this man can now be restored to his former life. And the second half of Leviticus 14 describes the gift that a leper would make according to the law. This was an animal sacrifice according to what he could uh, afford. It could be, you know, a bull. It could be uh, two little birds. It could be a flower offering, whatever he could afford. That's what Jesus is referring to the gift that Moses commanded, the sacrifice of atonement. And this whole process would take eight days from beginning to end. And after those eight days were over, after everything was completed, the leper would be restored to his family, his community, his people. He'd be accepted back into society. Can you imagine the joy that day as Jesus healed the leper, as he saw himself made clean? You know, I'm sure he was overjoyed if he was married, if he had a family, right? He couldn't wait to get back. Overwhelmed with emotion, I'm sure. Probably the best day of his life. There was no medicine to treat leprosy back then, right? Healing from leprosy was always thought of as a sign of God's work. But don't miss what Jesus says at the end of the verse here. He says, go and do this for a proof to them, for a proof to them. This word in the Greek is martyrion. We get this, uh, the, word, the word martyr, right, from this. Um, and it's a word that has a sense of bearing witness to something, right? Or giving a testimony for something. Um, 
what is really what is Jesus really getting at here? Well, the, the leper is told, don't just go tell everybody about what happened. Go to the priest, show them what has happened, and in doing so, the authority and power of Jesus will be proven. It will be proven. Leper's healing is evidence of Jesus' genuineness. But not only that, it's evidence that Jesus is actually living in obedience to the law of Moses. Jesus isn't trying to get rid of the law. He's telling this man, go and obey the law. Jesus is not overthrowing the law. He is fulfilling it. One commentator helpfully gives us a picture of what this would have meant. He says, to the priests, Jesus sends this healed leper as a living testimony. Jesus, who's been away from Jerusalem for a long time, sends them this man who for eight days is to be a silent preacher to them, a living witness of his gracious will and power and of his reverence for the law of Moses while it is still in force. When they finally learn this man's story after they themselves have officially pronounced him clean, they will have another testimony regarding the Messiah whom they reject, a testimony backed by their own findings. Jesus tells the leper, don't go tell everybody about it. The leper himself is enough evidence, enough of a testimony about Jesus. But as we consider the account of Jesus' miracle, we must ask, again, was it the law of Moses that healed the leper? Were his good works what cleansed him? No, they were not. And many people assume that they are, by and large, good people. And that the good things they do in this life bring them favor with God. But the Bible speaks very differently about it. The Apostle Paul, without qualification, in Romans 3.23, writes that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When we look at the leper, we really should see a picture of ourselves. We cannot redeem ourselves. We cannot cleanse ourselves. We cannot heal ourselves of our sin. The leper could not, and neither can we. Leprosy is a great problem, to be sure. And the leper could not overcome it. So how much more are we unable to overcome the greater problem of sin? It's not going to happen by our good works. Our attempts to obey the law are what reveal that we fall so short of it. No, we need a redeemer from outside of us. We need the one who the leper realized he needed that day. We need Christ. We need the Son of God who took on humanity and lived, suffered, died, and rose among sinful man for the sin and suffering of his people to save us, to remove the guilt of our sins. That is who we need. Our good works are not what are going to redeem us. They are not going to be what get us into heaven. They are not going to be what make us right with God. Are we commanded to obey the Lord? Yes. Do we need good works? Yes. But that is not the means by which we are forgiven of our sins. It is through Christ and his work alone. And that is what we must appeal to. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, or if you're watching online and you're not a Christian, Look to the Savior in this passage. Look to the one who with a word can redeem you. Look to the one who is not only able but willing to save those who come to him in genuine faith and humility like the leper. Look to the one who is able to forgive and heal and deal with your greatest problem, which is sin. And ask him, Lord, if you will, you can save me. Jesus says, I will. He saves all who come to him in faith.
if you're here and you are a Christian, you too must look to Christ. We must be very careful never to forget that we were sinners. We must be very careful never to forget who we were before Christ. And the longer we spend in church, the greater that danger can become. Because the further in the past it may seem. So we must be careful to remember what our Lord has redeemed us from, that we do not fall into pride and self-righteousness. Right, The leper took no credit in his cleansing that day. Not an ounce. Right, In the same way, we must never boast in ourselves and our, our faith. It's a gift from God. But with humility and awe, may we boast in the goodness and kindness of Jesus, our Redeemer, the healer of our souls. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, a small text, but a great picture of a mighty and compassionate Lord. Lord, you have all power. You are the Savior of all who believe. Lord, as we see your healing work, your kindness towards the leper today, may we desire to know you more. May this picture of your glory cause our hearts to respond in a desire to praise you, to know you more closely, to think upon you more dearly, to follow you more closely. And Lord, to rest in you more fully. Lord, our faith, our salvation is simply a gift from you as you gave that leper the gift of his cleansing that day. And Lord, may, as we sang, redeeming love be our theme. The redeeming love of our Savior, his kindness and grace towards us. And Lord, may you be exalted in that. Our Lord Jesus, you have not prohibited us from telling others what you have done. And so, Lord, may we go out with loud voices, with a message of grace and truth that displays the very kind of compassion you showed that leper that day. Oh, Lord, be exalted, we pray. In your name, amen. Would you stand with me for the singing of the doxology? As we... Uh, conclude our time in worship together today. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Benediction for you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Please join us for a time of uh, breaking bread together afterwards. And if we have some able-bodied men, we're going to need to clear these chairs and